I'm Allison, and this is Mayor. Hello, and this is Nefarious New York. Mayor, I know you wanted this to be about the creepy ghosts and paranormal activity at the Pilgrim State Hospital, but I actually stumbled upon a couple of interesting crimes. Wow, okay. But first, I just want to give you a sense of this hospital. Basically, just picture a stereotypical insane asylum. From the expressway on Long Island, you can see this big, creepy Victorian building. And if you look up photos on the internet, you can see the patients gazing out of the hundreds of windows. I know, it's straight up creepy. The hospital opened in 1931 and was huge and housed almost 14,000 patients at one point. You have some information about this? I do. Uh, The hospital was listed in the Guinness Book of Records. Like you said, it opened uh, October 1st, 1931, and it was... Uh, listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the largest mental institution in the world. Um, At its highest capacity, just after World War II, Pilgrim State housed over 14,000 patients. Um, What I found interesting was that the massive property had its own Long Island Railroad Station, post office with its own postmark, power plant, agriculture, and livestock farms, cemetery, police, and fire stations, and water tower. Um, And the complex was made up of many different buildings on over a thousand acres. So really, really big. Didn't it have um, like underground tunnels you were talking about at some point? Yes, it did. It did, which adds to the creepiness Mm -hmm. of everything. Totally. Another thing that I found really interesting was during World War II, the government took over four of the hospital buildings in the complex and created Mason General Hospital to serve as a psychiatric facility for those soldiers traumatized by the horrors of war. Mm. Mm-hmm. So it just adds another layer into the hospital and the, the stories that we're going to talk about. Right. The hospital was so huge, though, I think that was because there were no meds, right, like we have now? Right. Right, exactly. This was before all of that. So keeping in mind that it's before the meds, in the 1950s, this is where I think it gets extremely sketchy, this hospital, but lobotomies and electric shock therapy were big. And this statistic seemed crazy to me, that one in every 25 lobotomies in the U.S. were done at Pilgrim State. That ended up being over 2,000 lobotomies. Oh, my God. And I have one case that's um, the granddaughter has written about it, but um, it's Beulah Jones. She just had severe postpartum depression at the time. And, you know, without the meds, her husband okayed the lobotomy because he was told it was the only hope for her to be able to come home. And she said, the granddaughter said at one point, one of her children, when they visited her, she'd be yelling, my babies through the bars. Oh, my God. That makes me so sad. But the procedure was basically surgeons drilled two holes above your hairline and stuck this long instrument two inches in and just kind of messed around with your brain. I know two inches seems small, but when you're talking about someone's brain, yeah, right? The more standard procedure was a prefrontal lobotomy in which doctors drilled holes in a person's skull and using little more than guesswork removed goops of gray matter. Right. So she was basically left childlike, which is sort of what they were aiming for. They just wanted easy-to-control patients. We will have a picture of someone getting this procedure done and that instrument on our Facebook page. At the time, the king of lobotomies was Walter Freeman, Ivy Leaguer, 
a Barnum-esque neurologist who didn't let his lack of surgical credentials stop him from drilling into the noggins of patients at state hospitals. Uh, officials were always seeking at the time ways to cut costs and control violent inmates. Um, it's not known whether Freeman performed his infamous ice pick lobotomies at Pilgrim. Uh, using only electric shock as an anesthetic, Freeman would insert an ice pick into the corner of an eye of a patient, oh God, hammer it in and twist it up and down, severing neural fibers with abandon and turning patients into obedient zombies. But once we got drugs, these hospitals started to downsize and close because people could live normal lives. Right, and I believe that was starting in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. um, so doctors turned more and more to psychiatric drugs to help even out the unbalanced chemicals in the brains of their mental health patients. Um, but again, that didn't start until it started in the 1950s. So with the advent of these drugs came the blessed freedom for many of the inmates of the psych hospitals, such as Pilgrim State. But mm -hmm. again, you know, you've still got the lobotomies going on for however many years before this, you know, the psychiatric drugs came into play. Well, yeah, just at this one hospital, they did over 2,000, we said. That's Ugh. just at this one place. It's crazy. Um, but today, the hospital is still a functioning psychiatric hospital, but it's much smaller. And you have more firsthand experience with this. But most of the buildings are demolished or abandoned. There's, like, graffiti and garbage everywhere. I would think it looks like the set of a horror movie. It absolutely does. Um, I... <laughs> So I had the stupid idea one night. Uh, my husband, who grew up on Long Island, always told me about Pilgrim State Hospital, and we would see it as we drove out to his, his relatives' houses. And one day he said, I know you've always wanted to go in because I'm a weirdo. So I said, mm -hmm. yeah, I do want to go in. And uh, so we decided to go in, but it was 1130 at night. It was raining it was foggy it was cold and we drove through and it's it's not like you just drive into an entrance and then it's there you really have to kind of drive through a sort kind of a wooded area and I have to tell you it was probably one of the scariest things I've ever done um, it, most of it is demolished and vacant so I was a little disappointed that we didn't find any real ghost stories or paranormal activity, but you did uncover a crime. I did. So. I actually uncovered two crimes, one that I wanted to talk about this week and one we could do in a later episode. Okay. okay. So, so this crime starts for us in the early 1960s. Adam Burwood and Ava were married in Poland in the early 1960s. She was a 19-year-old timid engineering student, and he was 26 and already a nuclear engineer. Adam was her protector. In 1969, they came to the U.S. Adam was a dominant, egocentric man with a thick Polish accent, and Eva was more of a submissive, obedient wife. They were both devoutly Christian, but Adam's religious convictions were super strict, I feel like that's never good when you describe someone as strictly religious. I know it's horrible to say, but for me, I feel like that's a recipe for disaster. You're usually hiding something. Well, for them, this arrangement seemed to work. And to the outside, they look like a family living the American dream. 
but as we all know, looks can be deceiving. Ava stayed home with the kids, and Adam tried to start his own engineering firm, which he failed, which was a huge blow to his ego. So Ava went back to work, and she was becoming more successful than Adam ever was. Now, this might have put a strain on any marriage, but it especially put a strain on their marriage, and I think it even seemed to have started his spiral into madness. Ava was tolerating Adam's strange behavior until during a fight, Adam, with his eyes black with rage, threw her down the steps and dragged her out of the house. This was the last straw and forced her hand into starting divorce proceedings. Adam had basically become a complete stranger. In 1978, they were divorced, and Ava was given an order of protection. But this didn't matter to someone like Adam. He couldn't contain his rage against her. He believed that she was sexually abusing the kids. What? Yeah. He talked about when she would change the son's diaper and she would, like, nuzzle his belly, that he, she was sodomizing him. That's disgusting. Yeah. So he was very controlling, and he just could not let any of this go. He was charged with harassment, finally, and in court, in open court, he threatened to kill her and tried to physically attack her. He wrote a letter addressed to the Nassau court that he feared for his children and that killing their biological mother is the only effective means to protect my kids against her harmful practices towards them. The judge set his bail at $1 million dollars which is a lot of money now, but right. was extreme, it was an extremely high bail for 1979. Absolutely. And he ended up being sent to a maximum security psychiatric facility for evaluation. I think that was Mid-Hudson. Okay. And, and so obviously the, the courts and the judge were not buying the sexual No, no. That abuse. was totally a figment of his imagination. And they were obviously convinced of that as well. Yes. Yes. Um, so this is an interesting bit about the law, but once he was sent to the psychiatric facility, the criminal charges were dropped automatically. And he was hmm. basically treated like any patient, so he was on track to get back into society as quickly as possible. Crazy. Yeah. I mean... Well, both. it's overcrowded, right? So, From the facility, he wrote Ava many letters, one of which read, and this is translated from Polish, so it's a bit awkward... But it says, Before I myself kill you, I will push your ribs through your lungs and back. I will cut the veins in your legs so you won't be able to stand, and I will push your teeth into your brain. But even with all of that, he managed to convince the doctors to release him to a less secure facility, Pilgrim State. Ah, okay. So that's where we go now. That's where Pilgrim State comes in. Yes. Okay. While there, he broke out twice. Once he went to the children's school... And once he went to Eva's home, where she found the phone lines were cut, and he was asleep on her bed in his underwear. The man that wants to kill you is just in your home. In his underwear. Sleeping. <laughs> and cut the phone lines. I mean, and, and that's the, you've got, like, premeditation here. You have insanity here. You have, there, there's so many different levels of craziness. Mm -hmm. So after all of this, he was sent back to the maximum security facility. Around this time, the judge in his harassment case sent the facility a letter telling the doctors to be careful because this court is convinced that Adam intends to carry out his threat. Also, a prosecutor sent a letter that Adam was a clear and homicidal threat. And the prosecutor wrote, 
we have no doubt that if he is released, we will be reading about the murder of Ava Burwood in Newsday at some time in the future. Adam also complained to a doctor that keeping him in the hospital was unfair because it prevented him from killing Eva. But after all of that, and after just a short time, he was sent back to Pilgrim State. Through all of this stuff, his threats continued. He was not leaving her alone. As a result, a warning was placed on his file that Ava and the police should be notified if he escaped. He was only at Pilgrim State for two weeks when on December 5th he was given a day pass. He didn't return until 5.30, which was 90 minutes late, but they didn't record a violation at all. On December 6th, the second anniversary of his divorce, Adam asked to leave the grounds unsupervised to buy a coat, and Dr. Blumenthal granted the request. The nurses and the staff were extremely concerned. They didn't want him to leave, but the doctor, who only met with Adam once, okayed it and said he was an angel patient. I, this Dr. Blumenthal, did he not see his file? Did he not see? What is wrong with this doctor? He probably had a, thousands of patients. I don't know. But Adam got his pass, and he walked out of the hospital and boarded a train to Mineola, which was where his wife lived. No one seemed to notice at the time that he was wearing a perfectly good coat. Now, I find this really strange, but once in Mineola, he went to lunch and ate a hamburger and had a coffee. Then he went to the dentist for a cleaning, and then he went and purchased a five-inch hunting knife. Okay. So in the evening of December 6th, he called Pilgrim State, told them he had taken the wrong train, and that he'd be late. So this bought him a little time past his curfew. 35-year-old Eva was making dinner for her two children. The house was quiet and dimly lit. Adam walked down the driveway to the backyard, jimmied the screen off of one of the rectangular basement windows, and kicked in the glass. Eva heard the glass breaking in the basement, and she had just enough time to dial 911 before Adam was on her. The phone dangled from the cord, and the 911 operator heard screams and a struggle. <laughs> She heard Ava in a desperate attempt to get help, calling to her seven-year-old daughter, Olga, get out. Olga, call the policeman. After more struggling, the operator heard the woman panicked. Oh, God, oh, God, I'm dying. <sighs> After some more time, the 911 operator heard Ava calmly say, Okay, Adam, call the police department. I'm dying. Then the call was cut off. So she told her husband, or estranged husband, ex-husband, whatever he is now, to call the police department? Yes. Experts believe that she was laying there in pain and anguish, waiting to die for three minutes. As a mother, knowing that her children were there, she must have been terrified. Of course. I mean, that's, that's so sad. Finally, though, Pilgrim State did call the police, who went and checked on Ava and the children, but saw that the lights were off and assumed they were sleeping. So they left. Mm. At around 9 p.m., Adam did return to Pilgrim State, as if nothing happened and without that new coat. <sighs> and 9 a.m. the next morning, Adam called the prosecutor and calmly stated that he was a patient at Pilgrim State Hospital and he had killed his wife. 
So now, when the police arrived, Ava was displayed in the living room of her house with 22 stab wounds. She had been washed and dressed and staged with her arms crossed over her chest. There were candles and a crucifix made of red ribbons next to her. Oh, my God. It's like a ritual. It's very bizarre. We find out that the night before, after Adam murdered her, he had brought his children in to see her and told them, pray to mommy and kiss mommy goodbye. This man is a, was a sick, sick individual. The children were found in an upstairs bedroom unharmed. That afternoon, after Ava was taken away from the house, a telegram arrived at the Burwood residence informing her that Adam escaped. This is where I'm a little confused. So he escaped, but they gave him a day pass. Well, but he, when he didn't come home on time, I guess they... Oh, when he didn't get, go back to Pilgrim's State. When he didn't get back in time, they sent out the telegram, and then he came back, but the telegram was already out, Weren't, so it got delivered. Uh, how about a telephone call? <laughs> well, they tried, I'm sure. Um, in a letter to Newsday from his jail cell, Adam wrote, I did my act of taking a human life, not in the name of hatred toward my former wife, but in the name of Jesus Christ to defend my loved ones. He ended up having a three-day trial where he represented himself. Uh, If you are ever arrested, I don't care how smart you think you are, never represent yourself. No. No. I'm an attorney. I would never represent myself. It never ends well. And Mara, you probably have. I have a little experience with this. Not that I ever represented myself, but I was on. The only thing I can say is I was serving jury duty and there was a woman that was representing herself, and we we were dismissed immediately because it was a disaster. Well, it didn't turn out well for Adam either because he was sentenced to 35 years to life, and he is currently still in jail. I wonder, how old would he be now? Um, I don't know. I'd have to... I got, and what, uh, is he on good behavior, or were there, you know... No, not good behavior at all. He was... Also charged with the attempted murder of his former attorney. He uh, stabbed him in the neck with a pen because he wouldn't tell him anything about his children. And he also attacked a guard at the county jail with, like, some makeshift knife. So, no. He's not behaving. But in the end, the estate of Ava Burwood, so her children, won a $600,000 judgment against New York State because uh, they were obviously clearly negligent in treating Adam. Absolutely. And what about Dr. Blumenthal? Well, what totally rocked the whole psychiatric community and what had never happened before is Dr. Blumenthal, the one who issued the pass, and his supervisor were charged criminally and faced dismissal. Now, the charges were eventually dropped, but it did spark some change, and the law now requires the mental health department to notify families and law enforcement before allowing a dangerous patient to go free. Okay. Well, at least some good if any, came out of it. Right. This was part one of Pilgrim State. Stay tuned for part two. Please tune in. Please subscribe. Leave a five-star review because I think that's the only way that people are going to hear about the podcast and we'll get more listeners. So if you have any suggestions on some interesting cases in New York, you can shoot us an email at nefariousny at yahoo.com. That concludes this episode of Nefarious New York. Thanks for listening. Okay, so do you want me to do the end, Al? Sure. Okay. 
So that's all we have for today. That's not true. So that's all we have for today. So that concludes. (laughs) So that's the first episode of Nefarious New York? No. That concludes the first. That! He was 26 and already a nuclear engineer. What the hell? I did it again. Nuclear. What am I saying? Wait, wait. Can you spell it? Nuclear. Okay. Jesus, what is what am I saying? In Greece too. He goes nuclear. That's what I'm saying, right? <laughs> okay. She was. An- <laughs> I do know a little bit about this. I was not ever there. Blah, blah, blah. From the facility, he wrote Ava many letters, one of which read, and I'm going to translate it from Polish. No, I'm you're not. Gonna, you're nope, going to translate I'm Polish? I'm not. Wow. I've known you since kindergarten. I didn't know you spoke <laughs> Polish. I have no words. Hmm. I, uh, I... That's a first. <laughs> this man is a, was a sick, sick individual. It's totally. Totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> hey, God, gag me with a spoon. Nefarious New York, we out. <laughs>